1: and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic Studies and we chat with its author. In her wonderful new book Polygyny: What It Means When African American Muslim Women Share Their Husbands published by the University Press of Florida in 2015 Professor Deborah Majid, Professor of Religious Studies at Beloit College in Wisconsin provides an analytically robust and moving account of the aspirations, paradoxes, and problems attached to polygyny in the African-American Muslim community. By combining ethnography, history, and performance studies, Professor Majid seamlessly weaves together the theological, legal, and sociological dynamics of living polygyny. Readers of this book are treated to a riveting and incredibly lucid portrayal of a complicated phenomenon that brings together intimate individual stories and the broader historical and societal conditions that generate those stories in a remarkably effective fashion. In our conversation, we talked about the idea of Muslim womanism, the methodology of dialogical performance, the Quran and polygyny, the paradoxes of polygyny, Imam W.D. Muhammad's teachings on polygyny and the emotional and psychological impact of polygyny on children and women. This is among those rare books that are at once methodologically exciting and complex, and yet astonishingly accessible and well-written. Fellow should also make an excellent reading in courses on gender in Islam, Islamic law, American Islam, and American religion more broadly. Here now is my conversation with Professor Deborah Majid. Hello Deborah, how are you doing?
0: I'm just doing fine. How are you today?
1: Very good. Uh, thank you so much, Deborah, for your time. As I was saying before we went on a this was such a wonderful book, a, a very lyrically written book, uh, thought provocative, uh, conceptually exciting, and about a topic about which uh, we don't know much. And this book certainly uh, uh, does a lot to um, further understanding of a very important topic. So thank you so much for this wonderful book and for your time today.
0: Well, thank you so much for your kind words about it.
1: Well, we have a tradition of new books in Islamic studies that uh, our first question is always biographical. And that question uh, to you would be, uh, how did you become a scholar of Islam? Uh, Deborah, could you share with us your story and what uh, led you to write this particular book?
0: Sure. I... um I guess my road to uh, my focus, my scholarship focus on gender and Islam uh, parallels and at times intersects with my journey to Islam. I was completing my dissertation at Northwestern University and my focus was looking at early formulations of Islam among African-Americans in the uh, 20th century. And at the time, I was a Christian, an ordained minister. I was practicing and preaching in a local church. But I hadn't met any Muslims. And Muslims were the subjects of my dissertation. And by being in Chicago, which is one of the reasons why I chose a program that would connect the seminary, Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, and a research institution, Northwestern, As part of my research agenda, it was because Chicago had a high percentage, a high population of Muslims. So the first Muslim I met was Imam W.D. Muhammad. May Allah give him a rest in peace. And he permitted me to do research among his association. And in the process, I discovered that I felt very comfortable in what otherwise may be called a Muslim space. And um, eventually I... Encountered an ethical decision in that I needed to decide. I had been asked to um, start a church on North Chicago, and yet I was doing this research among Muslims, and I was very—I uh, felt very drawn to the level of spirituality, the ritual, uh, the depth of, of focus, uh, the Quranic study, and I felt very comfortable in a. In, a, in the, within Muslim communities, but, uh, the United Methodist Church was supporting me through my PhD. And so I had to make some decisions as it relates to funding. And, um, in the process, I decided that, um, my intellectual journey, explorations of early formulations of Islam, and a spiritual, um, odyssey ended up with me taking my Shahada. In, on May 1st, 1998, now at the time I'm in a PhD program and I am being trained to be a, a teacher of church history, particularly uh, modern church history. So I needed to change uh, the way I marketed myself to get my first job, too. So rather than looking at seminary opportunities at the at the time, I found no seminary, particularly within the United Methodist Church but no other seminary, actually, that was interested in hiring a former Christian, now Muslim, to teach church history. So I ended ended up going through uh, the liberal arts process and having opportunities, thankfully, to teach undergraduates. And that's why I ended up at a a, uh, private liberal arts school. And then in the focus of having opportunities to teach just about what I wanted to, I began to... Focus my uh, pedagogical considerations and my professional development and research on the scholarship uh, and gender the scholarship of Islam and looking at uh, gender and justice specifically
1: so there are multiple things uh, happening in this book uh, let's begin with a broader question which is could you describe uh, the central questions and the context and uh, the themes and actors that you explore in this project? Uh, what are you trying to? achieve in this book? Could you speak to that broadly? Uh, And then we will go into the specifics.
0: Of course. One of my primary objectives is that we begin, that this research begins to expand and increase conversations among African-American Muslims specifically, but also among American Muslims uh, particularly, and then globally, Muslims across the world, as we begin to think about the subject of marriage in the 21st century, what does Muslim marriage look like, and what ways does Muslim marriage uh, represent and replicate justice, as um, outlined in the Quran, for example? So, my one that that's a major issue. I would like us to have more conversations about. Um, how we might situate ourselves in the United States, a secular institution, yet uh where marriage is for m- many of us taught to be half of our religion, and one in which we are our the family is a central focus of our community. So there's a tie with family like life and spirituality, but also with realization that uh, marriages are difficult and um regardless of form and few mosque communities provide resources for the maintenance the cultivation uh, of healthy marriage healthy marriages within our community, a healthy, strong structural family life so I'm hopeful that we this book on polygyny actually is one that I hope creates conversations about marriage in general so that we can look at and and perhaps reimagine what a healthy marriage might be for a 21st century Muslim.
1: Now, one of the categories uh, that uh, is uh, central to your project and that you explore uh, in really fascinating ways is what you call uh, Muslim womanism. Uh, Could you explain uh, this idea of Muslim womanism and why is this concept important uh, to the goals of this book?
0: Sure. Well, I was introduced to the concept of womanism Particularly as it relates to African American Christian women, excuse me, attempting to provide a a connection between their spiritual experience and their their understanding of God to their everyday realities of being black women in America, and I had been a member of several sessions of the American. uh, American uh, Academy of Religion section on uh, womenist approaches. So I was introduced to, and as I said, I'm a former Christian, but introduced to Katie Cannon, Dolores Williams, Jacqueline Grant, Emily Towns, Cheryl Kirk Dugan, and others, first generation uh, womenists, who were showing me the ways in which a womanist theological framework and a womanist ethical of care was central to the survival of um, African-American women. And so I I wanted to have an approach that was very similar and that one I could parallel to the experiences of um, Muslim women. What was missing from womanism as I encountered it was a consideration of the multiplicity of religious experiences that are uh, present in the African-American community and wanting to bring in specifically uh, a Muslim approach. So rather than focus on the Bible or interpretations of such, I wanted to look at the centrality of the Quran, because that is a text that is very central to the social realities of African-American Muslim women who became my central subjects of the book.
1: One of the uh, methods that you employ in this book, and this, in this book is so conceptually and methodologically exciting uh, in, in many ways, and one of the methods that you employ is what you call dialogical performance, which I found really interesting in one of the earlier chapters of your book. Uh, could you explain to us what is this concept of uh, dialogical performance, uh, how you employ it in your book, and what are the kinds of results that this exercise yields for you uh, uh, in this project?
0: Well, I wanted to include what I call a staged, uh, performance in that I could provide the reader with fuller portraits of my uh, subjects and their experiences with living polygyny. So with the assistance of a number of colleagues who are in anthropology and sociology, I was able to take the womanist uh, lens and use it to frame a situation where we may take, pretend or imagine, I should say, if all of my subjects met and had a conversation. So I took some of the um, interview transcripts that I had and added uh, some secondary research and tried to imagine what a conversation might look like and sound like and perhaps feel like if my subjects came together. So I I pulled a few uh about 12 subjects together in a sense and created a, a what I call the dialogic performance or this round table experience so that for me performance means uh gathering together different voices so that they may be in conversation and so it's it perhaps as one scholar has said a way of deeply sensing the other and given that I wanted to create uh, social drama in this way, um, I wanted to create something that was both fictive and real at the same time. So Dialogical Performance permits me to draw the reader closer into the everyday experiences of African-American women. And there were a couple of men in the uh, Dialogical Performance who are living polygyny.
1: So uh, another aspect of your book which is particularly rich is the way that you discuss how African-American Muslims mobilize the Quran and other sources of tradition to authorize polygyny and how this exercise relates to uh, or the strategies of interpretation relates to their own authority and agency uh, in terms of reading the tradition. So could you explain to us some of the ways this happens, how the Quran and other sources are are mobilized and how this exercise connects to uh, the categories of authority and agency that you also talk about quite brilliantly in your book.
0: Well, for many African American Muslims, I, I should say, I could say most, um, as we might say for most Muslims globally, the Quran is the central location of everyday life, the way they consider their, are develop their value systems or of course, beliefs. And, um, considerations of relationships with other Muslims and others. So I was not surprised, of course, to find the significant role that the Quran would play in the lives of my subjects. And my subjects are primarily African-American Muslims who align with the leadership of Imam W.D. Muhammad. So what I discovered, though, that while living polygyny can be a positive and is a positive experience for a number of people, where there are areas of what we might call abuse or misrepresentation. and has a lot to do with the ways in which Alnisa three, in particularly, is erroneously interpreted. So there are those who will interpret the um, the uh, Alnisa three in relations to the extent to which. Men are permitted to marry an uh, up to four wives. A number of people read that permission as unconditional permission rather than conditional permission and so they will look at this as a right rather than seeing the significance of the responsibility and the qualification. so if we tie. Al Nisa three with Al Nisa one twenty nine for example, two major uh, and related passages that speak to the significance of justice. So we have it, We have people who look at the practice of polygyny as something that occurred in seventh century Arabia that is also applicable to twenty first century Arabia. But the problem becomes number one with those who see this as permission. Regardless of the presence of qualification, so there are there are men who would take second wives who are not economically economically um, physically or spiritually or emotionally prepared and you also have uh, individuals who see and who see polygyny as a right to the extent that they would Tell their current wife or teach other members of their community that a man has a right, and for a woman to a woman married to a man who wants to take a second wife, for her to disagree or attempt divorce, that action is therefore an Islamic because her husband is only saying yes as, to what Allah has said yes. In other words, she does he she is in no position to tell her husband that he can say no to something that Allah has said yes to. So the problem becomes in the ways that people are fir- fir- uh, framing their interpretive outlook of their of that particular passage. But we also have individuals on a more positive end who look at the practice of polygyny in 7th century Arabia and consider, well, now let's see. The, 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 the revelation of polygyny emerged following a major battle, battle, the battle of Uhud, right? Mm-hmm. And so at the time, polygyny uh, came as a revelation to, to uh, or I should say, Al-Nisa III came as a revelation to regulate, not institute, but to regulate a practice already in practice in Arabia and other parts of the world. So, Those who were were instructed after this major battle to take responsibility for the orphans and widows in their care, for example. A New York imam told me that for African-Americans, African-American Muslims in particular, all African-Americans are orphans, giving the racial uh, uh, legacy that we've experienced in the United States. So for him... When an African-American Muslim man wants to take on the responsibility of another, of a single woman or widow um, who who may or may not have children, then he is taking on the responsibility of an orphan in that regard. So you have those considerations as well. But when I begin to talk about the three ways in which polygyny is practiced, as my research suggests um, polygyny of liberation, polygyny of coercion, and polygyny of choice you also get to the point where you see there are individuals, women namely, who are interested in seeing that African American Muslim women who choose or desire marriage and are in position where and situated where they have fewer uh, potential mates, that these women will see polygyny as not only an outlet for women, but also a a way that they can help adhere to the responsibility, the communal responsibility that uh, women and men would take care of their own.
1: One of the uh, themes that you explore uh, in this book, and you talk about very poignantly, is what you call the paradoxes of polygyny, and you connect this idea of the paradoxes of polygyny uh, with the history of the nation of Islam uh, and so on. So, uh, what do you mean by this category? Could you explain a bit how this is used in your in your book, The Paradoxes of Polygyny, and how might it be uh, connected to the history of uh, the nation of Islam?
0: Well, I was very intrigued by the idea that my research um, showed me, demonstrated for me, that. The practice of multiple wife marriage could be an exercise of agency. In fact, it could be an exercise of liberation. That just astounded me. I had no idea that um, we might, I might discover something like that. I entered the, to this study, quite frankly and honestly, with the same similar stereotypes and misconceptions that m- many people have of multiple wife marriage, particularly. I thought the women, any woman who would share her husband must be crazy or she must be uneducated or she must be downtrodden or, you know, there must be something sociologically, financially, intellectually. There must be some problem here for her. But I discovered a number of women who choose polygyny. And here's where this is another way in which I frame the paradox that there are women who choose polygyny for themselves. In that, number one, they're looking forward to being a second wife because they don't want to have full responsibility for a husband or because they have uh, maintained their careers for themselves. They are financially independent and they want the other benefits of marriage, but they don't want to have to have full responsibility in that regard. And then thirdly, you have women who are married to men and they want to encourage their husbands. To take on the responsibility so that other women could have the opportunity to experience uh, a marriage, the companionship of marriage, can raise children with a with a father figure, which is which helps in a number of ways in, in communities. And that these women, some of which, very few of them in this regard, but they're women who identify themselves as polygynists, and they do so by choice. So that notion, the paradox comes from me and that this is an exercise of agency for a number of women and that women and men who practice it most successfully reflect the experiences of women who are living polygyny as liberation.
1: Now, one of the key uh, uh, figures uh, you discuss uh, quite prominently in your book is, of course, Imam W.D. Muhammad and you talk about his teachings on polygyny. Uh, So could you share with us what were uh, some of uh, Imam W.D. Muhammad's teachings in polygyny and how have or should those teachings inform uh, such practices uh, in in the community?
0: Sure. Well, you also had asked me in, a, in a, um, the former question to address the uh, Nation of Islam. Sure, right. Sure, uh, I'm, I'm sorry that I, I did not do that. So let me try to attempt that as I'm uh, considering uh, Imam W.D. Muhammad. And that is, when I think of the Nation of Islam, I think of it in two ways. That anytime I use the term NOI or Nation of Islam, I have to consider history. So for me, am I talking about the, um, original Nation of Islam? And for me, that is one whose architect was Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad died, <coughs> excuse me, in 1975 and his successor and seventh son, W.D. Muhammad, guided the then Nation of Islam, given that splinter groups happened in that movement as in any other, Imam W.D. Muhammad began to guide his father's movement onto the path of mainstream Islam. Along that trans as that transitional period to go on its own life, uh, the Honorable Elijah uh, the Honorable Louis Farrakhan decided that. Imam Muhammad's teachings were deferring or or reverting too far away from the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. And then the honorable Louis Farrakhan organized another movement that I call the contemporary nation of Islam. And so that's the movement that he now leads. So when I think of the nation of Islam and I think of the successor to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, I think of the my leader and the influence of the seventh son of Elijah and Claire Muhammad, and that being Imam W.D. Muhammad. May Allah give him rest in peace. And he taught his followers and association and supporters. Imam Muhammad was a pivotal figure for global Islam, recognized around the world, a leader in interfaith interfaith, um, considerations and conversations, and somebody who was quite concerned about the maintenance and cultivation of healthy family life. So he taught his uh, students and leaders to teach about marriage, and he taught them as late as the uh, mid to late 1990s To also from their mosque communities and spaces of influence to address the issue of polygyny. So, as he did, Emil Muhammad, that is, in conversations that he held across the United States with uh, audiences that were Muslim, uh, uh, sister only or brother only, as well as audiences that were both male and female, he outlined nine principles for the proper practice of polygyny in the United States. And if you bear with me, I'll just, uh, I'll just outline those nine. He said that one, talking particularly to brothers, he said that a husband must possess taqwa, God consciousness, of course, and that, that a woman should, uh, examine the level of God consciousness of potential mates, whether polygynous or monogamous. He said that each husband needed to avoid discrimination. And we know that a- a- as Imam Muhammad preached so fervently, that Al Nisa 129 reminds you that it's very difficult to do justice. But Imam Muhammad says you need to avoid discrimination if you decide to enter into polygyny, that a husband should provide individual living quarters for each wife that he should inform his current wife or wives before taking another wife, that he should enter into a marriage that does not contradict with any previous contract or any accepted circumstance already agreed upon. He uh, said that that, uh, a husband should consider obtaining a marriage license. And we know that polygyny is against the law. And so, um, it's, it's not in all 50 states and, um, except Utah as of last year. And by polygyny, then I'm meaning not, uh, multiple wife marriage as a, as a, as a, as a legal consideration. But what happened in Utah was that a di- U.S. district judge ruled that the Utah ban of cohabitation between, um, a me- uh, members of the opposite sex who are engaged in a sexually intimate relationship that construes to a marriage that them living together is no longer a crime. This is only at this point in the state of Utah, but you still can't have, it's still illegal to have multiple marriage licenses to register, to register more than one uh, marriage is still illegal. And email Muhammad was saying, well, if you really think that God has called you to do this, brother, then you should. You should look at this as something that you want to contest as one might an unjust law. So, in other words, consider obtaining a marriage license. He said that a husband must make the marriage ceremony public. It's not supposed to be in secret. It's not supposed to be hidden. And he said that a husband is not to use the marriage as a means of preventing divorce or adultery. And he said that one should enter into polygyny for an important reason. So as I looked at those considerations, it was interesting for me to discover that uh, there were some examples of men engaged in polygyny within his association that actually tried to address his qualifications, but there were, there were uh, too many that did not reflect adherence to these qualifications.
1: Towards the end of your book, uh, you discuss uh, the uh, psychological and emotional effect of uh, uh, polygyny, especially on children and women uh, in uh, such families and so on. Uh, could you share with us what your research revealed about the impact of polygyny on uh, the psychological and the behavior, uh, 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 the behavior and the emotional well-being of children and women?
0: Yes. Well, it's important to um, articulate at the outset that my research uh, does not indicate a higher risk of behavioral problems among children raised in polygynous households um, than one might find in single or dual-parent households. It's not the form of marriage necessarily that creates an environment for behavioral problems, but what my, my research did indicate was that Polygyny raises a number of other issues. Um, One being that most of my uh, subjects bring children into multiple wife marriages before the children reach age of 10. So the mothers are saying that one thing that is a positive thing is that uh, co-wives who are actively involved in the physical, emotional, or spiritual care of children can be a benefit. One of the challenges, though, is that When you're moving between families, children um, make attachments, and these attachments can be difficult to break, particularly if a a mother's former husband was more supportive or caring or paid more attention to a child. For example, there was a—I have one subject, a young uh, who I interviewed as an adult, and this is what she said. I call her Fatima in the book, and she says, I loved my stepfather. He cared for my brother and me as if we were his own kids. And when my two youngest brothers were born, it felt just like one big family. I was sad when they divorced and we left. I know he worked a lot, and mom was often alone with us, but I never understood why we couldn't be a family again. And so this young woman, has grown an attachment to her stepfather the parents divorce her mother marries a man who believes that male children in particular should be raised by their fathers especially if their fathers are capable and um, you know live live in a nearby region and so when her mother thought that here my children would be together and we would we would live with my husband she discovered that she needed to return her younger sons to their father to be raised by them and that she could only see them excuse me she could only see them on vacations so what became a united front a united family in a former uh, in a monogamous situation became a broken family in a sense and a polygynous one you also have the situation where moving into a polygynous environment then can can challenge a child's sense of trust or confidence or well-being and that the, the approach that you're modeling something that can be um, in which the kids, the children may not understand what a parent's going through. Some of the children see, uh, and in this particular situation, they see their mother dealing with issues of insecurity or a jealousy, or having a situation where their financial or household needs are not maintained sufficiently, perhaps as they were before. Now that her uh, the the husband has taken on a, another set of um, another family, for example, we have um, mental health experts are speaking more about some of the challenges that their clients. Or patients encounter, and these clients and patients are making their practice of polygyny more visible. Okay, so it can, can be it can be a positive effect on children. I interviewed one young man who would always come home and ask his his parents. He says he says, "Why doesn't so and so? Why doesn't Julie have two mommies?" All right. So for him, it was a very positive experience and he saw his, his other mommy, in a sense, as a nurturer. Uh, there were, there were, uh, there was always discipline and love and care and respect around in the household. So he saw it as a a positive approach. In fact, as an adult, he talked about the ways in which he felt his parents' relationship was enhanced by the presence of, um, his mother's co-wife. But you will have other situations like Fatima, where Fatima's experience, where polygyny becomes something that tears a family apart.
1: Now, in a particularly uh, moving afterward, uh, you offer some of your own reflections and suggestions on the practice of polygyny among African-American Muslims. Uh, Could you share with us some of the highlights uh, of the suggestions that you offer in the afterward?
0: Yes. One of the recommendations I have is that we need, in the African-American Muslim, the American Muslim community, and global Muslim communities, if I could say so, we need a widespread process of engagement, dialogue, and education on the various forms of marriage permissible in Islam and their application. Particularly for us in the United States, we need to have more discussion more discourse and more resources available for the forms of marriage permissible in islam and their application in the united states i'm particularly concerned and interested in the development of resources among uh, mosque communities for example i think that uh, our mosque leadership individually and collectively, should be more concerned about the ways in which we need to take responsibility for healthy marriages. And so for me, that means that a, an individual mosque in its leadership should assume greater responsibility for the couples it agrees to permit to marry in that space. Uh, so we know that some imams and other mosque leaders refuse to officiate over polygynous marriages for example others re- refuse to officiate if the marriage contract or nikah does not indicate the form of marriage or that the uh, if there is not clear evidence that the husband's present or present wife or wives are in agreement so I would I would recommend that mosque leaders, refuse to perform marriages of men who do not meet the qualifications as outlined in the Quran, and that these same mosque communities also ensure that women have all the information and resources they need to make informed decisions. So for me, that means that rather than permitting nikahs to occur and celebrating them only, that we also look at, as a community, that we also look at the responsibilities we have to maintaining and supporting those very marriages that we celebrated as they uh, exchanged their vows. I also think that we need to take a more morally responsible approach. And for me, that means that recognizing polygynous and monogamous marriages are just uh, different ways that some individuals and communities intentionally organize their households. So we know that multiple wife marriages are not inherently abusive or discriminatory against women and that polygyny does not intrinsically foster social harm. But we also know that there are women who experience much abuse, that there are women for whom uh, polygyny marriages can be emotionally harmful, can be destructive to their, their social core, that women are often in, in uh, polygynous marriages because they feel they have no choice. That's the polygyny of coercion uh, that I was speaking of what, about before. But at, at the final consideration, we need to be sure that we're looking at multiple wife marriage from the women who experience it, that we need to be concerned about what they are concerned about, and that we need to provide resources and support so that American Muslims in com- particularly can cultivate and maintain healthy marriages regardless of form. But we don't have sufficient resources uh, across the United States, definitely in some communities we do, but not sufficiently across the United States. We need to have some kind of database, for example, so that a woman in Peoria, Illinois, will not get a different guidance or a different uh, directions or how to pursue monogamy or monogamous or polygynous marriages, then say a woman might get and might receive in Charlotte, North Carolina. So at some point, when we're talking about uh, marriage in Islam, marriage among uh, American Muslims, whether monogamous or polygynous, we really need the kind of resources in place that um, draw attention to the responsibility we have to cultivating and maintaining healthy marriages, but also the the necessity to focus on and prepare children and the, and their and the family and their families as it relates to mental health issues. I recommend discussions about children and mental health issues. I recommend that before uh, counseling sessions that are occurring and that when during the counseling session, for example, I love the experience of one of my uh, um, subjects that you see in the afterward where the imam said, okay, I do premarital counseling normally. So now that this is the polygynous um, experience, I want to bring in your current wife and I want to hear from her. And I want to have conversations with the three of you to ensure that she's in agreement with this. She's aware of this. She says or or concurs that you are qualified, that you have met the conditions to practices and that we make this a public event that the uh, at the Nikah, the first wife was present, that the imam asked her in front of the mosque community. She's not learning about it. At uh, a later date by somebody else, she's present. The community is aware that this man is taking full responsibility of two families. All right. So there are resources in place that not only legitimate both unions and the email is is um, has been aware that this husband has provided for each family and the Imam sees documentation of this so there should be no no issue that one family is being taken care of at the loss of another these issues are already dealt with the families are involved the parents are aware well. the community is behind this why because the community wants to help develop and support the maintenance of healthy marriage and so it isn't that this is it isn't a big deal that this is a polygynous marriage as much as this is a marriage in which this community has the resources and support to help ensure, or, or, in, inshallah, its success.
1: So, Deborah, as we are approaching the end of our time, uh, could you share with us uh, what are uh, you working on these days? What are the kinds of things that we can expect to read from you and learn from you uh, in the coming uh, you know, months and years?
0: Well, right now, uh, my focus is to, of course, expand our knowledge base about the questions that I raise in the book. I'm excited that through October, the end of October, the price of the book is at a conference rate of $30. So uh, our listeners can go to www.examinepolygyny.com. And, and and discover how they may order the book for more than half price directly from the publisher, University Press of Florida. Having said that, this the research for this book has compelled me to situate myself in a place I never thought I'd be. And that is on the forefront of working toward the decriminalization of polygyny in the United States. I think... And feel that every marriage deserves every marriage within our, uh, with particularly within the, uh, Muslims association, whether monogamous or polygyny, polygynous deserves, um, legitimacy. And so there are ways in which I believe the actions of the, uh, the uh, polygynous family in Utah that help spur the decision of the U.S. District Court in Utah to uh, render cohabitation no longer a crime, I believe that that work positions American Muslims to a space where we can talk about uh, polygyny more out in the open, but also gives us an opportunity to find ways in which we want to, what we say, I should say, the marriage, the forms of marriage that we say are permitted, conditionally permitted, or as a monogamous marriages, just permitted. But the forms of marriage that we say are permitted in Islam, we should also be ready to support the maintenance and survival of those forms of marriages. And in order to do so, we have to ensure that these marriages are on equal ground. And when one marriage can be civilly recognized and one cannot, we don't have justice there, even with the best of intentions. So I am hopeful, inshallah, that uh, the next few years begins to see expanded conversations about this, the cultivation of resources about this, uh, intentional restrictions placed in areas and with situations that do not meet the Quranic prescriptions for polygyny but that we also see a greater awareness of the need for us to do all we can to cultivate and sustain healthy marriages in Islam.
1: Polygyny, what it means when African American Muslim women share their husbands by Professor Deborah Majid published by the University Press of Florida in 2015. Uh, Thank you so much Deborah for this outstanding and wonderful book and for the opportunity of this conversation, really thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, I, I really appreciate your time.
0: Well, uh, thank you, Ajazakallah, uh, to my brother, and Assalamu Alaikum.
1: Wa Alaikum, Assalam. Thank you very much. So, this was my conversation with Professor Deborah Majid about her wonderful new book, Polygyny What It Means When African American Muslim Women Share Their Husbands. Thank you so much for your time and for listening to this conversation. And also please join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sheer Ali Tareen, signing off. Be well and take care.